Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. This is the Abby Normal Podcast, here to tell you that you're weird and that's normal. Like, how fundamentalist was it, Dan? So fundamentalist, they put it on the building and they printed it, like, on their bulletins. They self-identified as a fundamentalist Christian church. Like, that was the brand. Growing up fundamentalist evangelical, where it was more about personal salvation, getting specifically right with Jesus so I didn't go to hell or whatever. You know, I think I see people with crosses around their necks who clearly hate their enemies and who want nothing but their destruction. I can't recognize that as Christian because that's repudiating what I understand the atonement to have been about, what Jesus was about. And I walked away from it, and I walked into, like, very dark, scary terrain for a really long time. And I thought that that was permanent in some ways. Our sense of being sort of, whatever, out in the spiritual wilderness for a decade was in many ways life-giving and helpful because we like learned how to make meaningful connections with people who understood the world really, really differently from us in a way that a fundamentalist upbringing tells you cannot happen. Kim, are you on the I'm spiritual but not religious side or you're not going to claim one? I'm sometimes one? like no, not sure if I'm either religious or <laughs> right, spiritual. Right, like what's the third option? <laughs> right. Neither spiritual nor Bitter. religious. Bitter. Bitter with a capital B. <laughs> And again, like as a person who like completely disaffiliated from church for over a decade, I know that sense of like, I'm just kind of done with this. Like, I don't know that this is a productive use of my time to be connected to this thing. I cried a lot when we were there. There was a lot of times where both of us were like, what are we doing? Like, we got to quit. You know, I could feel that pull of like not being in the church for 10 years, you know. So I think that we were just willing to go to hell. That is the skeptic Kim and the saint Dan. Though I could have also said the saint Kim and the skeptic Dan. They are a little bit of both. Neither would claim that saint title. They're probably cringing right now as I'm saying the word. Dan is tall and blonde with a wide, warm smile. He's into sci-fi and history. Kim is the opposite. Slight build, long, dark hair, quieter, seemingly more serious, luscious, rich voice. As I was doing the Not The Same series, we joked about all the evangelical stuff we grew up around. Demonic He-Man toys. Meet Me at the Pole prayer days at school, all the Christian music. They both had me clutching my sides, laughing in the way that things hilarious and slightly sad will do. And I immediately found them fascinating. They're kind and approachable and have done really cool stuff that they're totally humble about. Listen to how they talk about themselves and then how they talk about each other. Uh, by the way, you got your editing cut out for you because I say, you know, so... <laughs> 
so much <laughs> when I'm like, Thinking, I, I haven't yeah. planned it ahead. Like if I got a manuscript or something, I'm fine. But when I'm making the thought up in real time, a lot of filler goes on. I got on. you. I got you. You know, all <laughs> over the place, far as the right eye can now. see. Uh, so. No, but I would say Dan is the, he is the walking textbook. He's a walking, talking textbook. So Dan used to teach history and like art history and he's just one of those people that he reads a thing he's really annoying like really fucking annoying like i read a thing <laughs> in college and i had to you know read it like 10 times dan reads it once and it's like embedded yeah. in his brain yeah. and i know that's i also know that's not totally true because he also takes copious notes on everything he reads and so he just recalls things very quickly and makes lots of connections very quickly and he's also hugely passionate about history i can't like a million and a half streams every month in china oh my god catalog does but i am used still been like a big a big one over there yeah. and so you're super famous is what you're in saying. china mainland yeah. china well, I, don't, well, I wouldn't say that no I'm big deal super, just well, china. i wouldn't say that i'm super <laughs> famous but that song is still really well known and it's cool it's interesting um can i just jump into your yeah, yeah this entire telling of your career has somehow completely missed the fact that you yeah. had a starring role in a movie that was oh. like a sundance like <laughs> darling and stuff so i yeah. feel like you need to back up and fill that piece i did in. forget about that i piece. need to hear about that <laughs> after 25 years of marriage they totally tease each other but i love how frequently they pause to praise and advocate for the other it's freaking cute and yes you'll hear about kim's starring role later so i want you to meet them and hear their story in the Not The Same series, we talked with a bunch of people who left evangelicalism or got kicked out or journeyed away and back to something new. The process was lonely and scary. But going through this as a couple is a different beast. It can still be very lonely and scary, maybe even double the scary. But it can also provide some comfort. If you're committed to going through it together, as Kim and Dan discovered, they were willing to do. I will not say we got kicked out. I will say it was <laughs> more dramatic. Suggested that we leave strongly. Um, what do I know? Where do I begin? I hear this record playing. It's spinning all day, all night. Where do I start? I start right from the beginning. Use my imagination Maybe some feeling Maybe some heart At the very beginning of their story, they were two young and passionate Christian kids who met in maybe the weirdest location ever. Do you want me to start? Can so, I start with my one-liner and then you can like tell it in a more responsible way? <laughs> okay. I met my wife in a convent. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is a 100% true statement. Which one of you was in the convent? Oh my goodness. We both were. We were living in rooms next door to each other in the convent. Are you serious? So goofy. Yes. Yep, a convent. Kim grew up in Florida and moved to Cincinnati when she was 21. For a, a, a few different reasons. Music was one of them. And when I drove in, I was I was given a place to stay. And that was at this uh, in this community in Norwood, Ohio. Affiliate, a church affiliated with the Vineyard. And they owned property that had an Catholic, an old Catholic church, it was former Catholic church, a convent, and a monastery. 
that was on the property. Or like a rectory house. Like a, a rectory house. Convent and a And the convent had been turned into basically like communal living. So I entered as the first female in this like community program where I didn't have to pay rent. I it was just, a dude convent. <laughs> it was a dude convent. I was the only non-dude. That sounds pretty awesome. And Dan moved in too. Yeah, the rest is history. We were part of this Christian formation program with the church, affiliated with the church, and we'd how do I describe it? I mean, this? I think today what we were involved with is lumped under the banner of like neo monastic yeah. kind of stuff. At the time, we were just like figuring it all out and we didn't, we didn't really, I mean, we started making contact with some other places that were also forming like intentional Christian communities along similar lines. And so it was sort of being invented while we were there. But it, what really the idea behind it was is that, you know, the monastic communities in church history, they tended to take root in the places that were ignored by the empire, you know, the places that had been abandoned, the wastelands, you know, the places that were thought to be of no value. And so this particular community was in this like largely neglected old Catholic church property in a neighborhood in Cincinnati, which was mm. largely neglected and and pretty poor and had a lot of, you know, struggles in the area. And so there was a thought that like, this is a place to gather a community to do some good. And maybe we can learn something from the Christian monastic tradition. And so we had we formed community businesses to sustain ourselves, did like hardwood floor sanding and house painting and cleaning services and stuff like that. And then we had sort of programs for the neighborhood. A lot of what we did was with kids in the neighborhood. It was sort of like after school programs and stuff. Um, and then we were also involved with the more churchy aspects of the church. Uh, Kim was a worship leader. Very at one, briefly. At one point I was leading one of the, the house church gatherings, which the church was largely built out of so so there was sort of the churchy stuff and then there was sort of like the after school stuff and there was like the community businesses where you like brought in the money to pay for it and so that was sort of the model what a fascinating thing to volunteer to be a part of as a 21 year old they started dating and within four months were married when we got married i had just turned 23 and dan and dan had just turned 22 because we only Babies. dated for four months yeah that's not part of it too and no, it wasn't because I was and we, pregnant. And we didn't <laughs> no, really... No, but you definitely wanted to get down each. to business. <laughs> it, so. it was more or less like meet, start dating pretty quickly, get married four months later. Shock all of our family yeah, yeah. and friends and get married. Everybody, yeah. I, I had many people recommend that maybe I wanted to think a little bit more before I did that. Uh -huh. and, and I don't blame any of them. Like, it had to look weird, but... Here we sit. So here you sit. You know. Oh my god. Every now and then, love wins. Love you know, <laughs> like it, it has a happy ending. We, we lived were, there almost a school year, I think. Right, like full. We were what a in full the year. convent for yeah. about a full year, and then the way that the church community <laughs> was set up. There was, while we were there, there was sort of like the intentional on-campus community. And then there was also sort of a second layer to the community. They were encouraging people to sort of move to this neighborhood and like That's even right. share houses with each other. And so there was this second layer of sort of like houses. And we were a part of that for another yeah. few years. So after. We, we moved in with this couple and like helped house. They just bought a house and house set for them. And then that's where we got pregnant. And we were like, we probably can't stay because it was like they were touring a lot. And we had like, we were like, little baby, I don't think that's going to work out very well. So then we ended up moving into another house. It was like a two It was a little bit more of a separate, shared. separate situation. But it was still with people who were. Still, part of we this still knew community. the people. Yeah. So I don't know. What and was that's it like? where we brought Griffin home. Four years. They were part of this vineyard community until their baby Griffin was about two. 
And during this time, yes, they were invested in their religious beliefs, in pursuing a different way of life. But even at this young age, they also brought in some baggage. They had already started some deconstructing. I mean, it sounds like you're like in it real deep. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I was a mess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And partly that was because prior to moving to Cincinnati, I had actually, I had been at a Bible college for three years, a really very fundamentalist Bible college that had had some issues, clearly had had some issues. And so I, I don't know, I was sort of already, there, there were definitely things kind of falling apart. I was already rejecting some ideas, but I was also, I had a, a lot of fear about it. Mm-hmm. A lot of fear about, you know, eternal damnation. You just kind of think you're stepping away from what you've been taught your whole life. So my memory, quite frankly, is a little bit blurry in terms of like how I was unwrapping things. I, I think I was the beginning of feeling pretty bitter and resentful, whereas Dan was, I think I know you're a lot more lucid about that time in your life. Yeah, I mean, so what I were you grew, starting to question? So I grew up in a like very fundamentalist church, and I actually ended up when I was in college, I was like their youth intern guy for a couple of summers, and it was sort of when I started working and teaching classes for youth and stuff that I was slowly figuring out that I was definitely not a fundamentalist. Like the more that I was reading about, I mean, it was actually kind of funny that I worked for this church. And part of like the job description for the church was that I had to like spend a certain amount of time every morning in study. And there was like a bookstore that was down the street from the church. And I was like, well, I'm going to go get some books and study. And I was like naive enough because I had been sheltered inside the fundamentalist bubble so thoroughly that I was under the impression that if I grabbed basically any kind of like scholarship on Christian history or biblical archaeology, it would more or less square with what I was taught. I would just get more context, you know, maybe it'd be good for the apologetics arguments or whatever. Uh-huh. So I just started grabbing some stuff and I was like, well, this looks like a standard text on, you know, church history or biblical archaeology or whatever. And the more I was studying, I was just like, none of this matches with anything I have been taught. Like, Whoa. like none of this matches. And so as I was starting to sort of, realized that there was a discrepancy between, you know, the version of Christianity I had been taught and the version of Christianity apparently most of the world's population was engaged in. That shook me a little. And so that led to me leaving that church, which was the one I had grown up in. Um, But I just sort of had the sense like I need to see more of the church. And so there was a period of like, I don't know, maybe the better part of a year where I tried to visit as many flavors of Christianity as I could so that I could see it. So I like you know, visited the Catholics and I visited, you know, the Methodists. I visited, you know, just a bunch of different kinds of churches because I just realized my formation had been in the particular fundamentalist church I grew up in and in a bunch of Baptist churches because I actually went to Christian schools growing up too and they were pretty much all Baptist affiliated. Mm. Somewhere in that period of like exploring and visiting things that I became aware of this vineyard affiliated Mm. community and I ended up kind of moving in there because I wasn't really sure what to do. But by my lights at that point, the vineyard community was extremely progressive, right? right? Because right. like they were, they were open in a way that the church that I grew up in was not open. This so particular community that. also had a lot of artists yep. in it, a lot of creative people. It was kind of, it was a little different from the rest of the vineyards in the city. And that was really, I think, attractive to both of us as well. Yeah. Totally. So. Yeah. Totally. And there were just some great people in the community. Yeah, there, there were some some people who were educated in ways that I was not used to being around religious leaders being educated. There were people that were very serious about things like, you know, the mission of the church being to live in solidarity with the poor 
and to work for justice, you know? And like, that was kind of new to me because like all I ever really knew in my suburban fundamentalist church is that Christians are people who get their souls right with God. And then they just sort of like bunker away and wait it out until eternity arrives. Like, so that idea of understanding the mission of the church is to invest more deeply in the world, not to, not to withdraw from it. Mm. Um, that was intensely attractive. And mm. so I think that was yeah, really... Yeah, I mean, there were people living there right. right next to the church and out every day, like, or sweeping the streets. And yeah, I mean... We would go and help... The pastor of this church would yeah. walk the streets in a neighborhood that accumulated a lot of litter, picking up litter, you know? Mm. That was just, like, a spiritual practice. And that probably meant more to me than any particular theological argument being made by the church. often tell people that I think this Dan is... Dan is really the one that got us in trouble. <laughs> is this where the trouble started? <laughs> it really Are we there? Him, but I was, you know, I was secretly pushing him to do it too, but... I was just... He, he's very... He I was continuing to read a lot. Yeah. I was, you know, trying... Because, like, we were living in a convent next to this, like, big old Gothic church. And I was... And I think a lot of us who are living in that community, we were, we were increasingly aware that there was a discrepancy between the version of Christianity that we knew... You know, the, the, the guitars and the coffee and the jeans and the, you know, projected lyrics up on the wall and whatever the hell monks were doing in the Middle Ages, right? Yeah. Like these two things did not seem to, you know, square, but we were kind of interested in trying to understand what the monks were up to in the Middle Ages. Like, how did we get from there to here? And so I think in a weird way, like architecture played a big role, yeah. like just living in this property where you right. knew there had been a lot of nuns for a long time and there had been people living a version of Christianity that was not what we were and so I know it was somewhere during that period that I think I got a hold of a copy of the Book of Common Prayer for the mm-hmm. first time. I did not understand what the Episcopal Church was. I didn't really understand what the Book of Common Prayer was, but I was just sort of like trying to wrap my head around the idea of what it would mean to to be like grounded in liturgical practices that go back, you know, a thousand mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's noticing a discrepancy between historical Christian practices and the version of Christianity that he knew. And he was reading a lot, thinking about his own theology. And thus... The trouble began. Uh, the <laughs> one night, uh, we were at a gathering of our house church. And, you know, we knew the people mm. in this church really well. And we cared about these people and, and had good relationships with them. But there was some conversation that night. And it was about some aspect of the Bible. I think it was about Satan, but don't hold me to that. And we kind of were like going around the circle and people were sort of like talking about how they, you know, understood this thing. And it kind of came to me and I was sort of like a leader in the thing. And I just had to say, like, I don't I don't understand Satan to be a literal being like that's not how I come at this. And so I don't really have a opinion on like what Satan's up to in the way everyone else is talking about it, because that's not how I understand Satan. And and. And it was just um, like a record scratch. A little bit, little like, bit of a record scratch, you know, like record <laughs> scratch. Everybody gets quiet, stares at Dan, you know, tilts head just a little bit like, mm, okay. And it was within, I don't know, a week or two of that, that some other folks who were involved with the house church and with the larger church sort of reached out to me to say that they didn't think it would be appropriate for me to continue in a leadership role with this house church because of my views on the Bible and we didn't like leave right away. In fact, mm-hmm. we, I, we were more cause we were involved with like the after school program with the kids and we had like relationships with people. And so we were just like, okay, you know, um, not, not involved there, but we'll be involved in other places and we'll continue to sort of like 
advocate for our understanding of things in other places. And that went on for, I don't know, maybe like another mm-hmm. year or something before it came to a head. And, and that came to a head because, and I, I still remember the sequence of events that led me down this path, which was Kim was playing a show one night at a club in downtown Cincinnati. I'm a musician. <laughs> She's a musician, yeah, if we haven't covered that. <laughs> and it was after the show when she was cleaning up, I saw over by the door, it was like an upstairs like club above this like restaurant. And there were two guys standing over there saying goodbye to each other. And mm-hmm. I saw one of them give the other one a kiss on his way out the door. You know, just like lean over, peck on the lips, see you later. And it hit me like a runaway train because like I kissed Kim like that all the time. And yet I was not used to being in spaces where I saw people of the same gender uh, express affection for each other in that way. And it like hit me because it was like, why have I not seen that before? And it's like, oh yeah, because I'm in one of the few spaces right now where they feel safe. Mm -hmm. And like the spaces where I have invested my life are not safe. So that led to us having a lot of conversations and I guess more or less we sort of came to the decision that we couldn't be indifferent about this. And and it was like, I don't even think at the moment I had theologically worked out Mm-mm. You know, how does God feel about homosexuality? I wasn't there yet. Like, I, I I had thoughts. I thought it was a little weird that, like, this thing would be such a deal breaker for God when it's, you know, at best a very minor note in the biblical text. But I hadn't quite worked it all out. But I just kind of knew that, like, I just had the sense that, like, if somebody came to me and they were like, you got to choose between the church or Kim, I wouldn't I wouldn't need any time to think about that decision. I'd be gone. and And that it was just unacceptable that like the church was asking other people to make this decision. And so, mm-hmm. um, and plus like the, the church where we were at, that one of the things that sort of had drawn us in was that it was sort of a strategy that I think evangelical churches were just starting to use at that time. And it became much more mainstream later, which is to hide your theological statement and imply right. that you don't have one. Right. So just keep it locked up in the basement mm-hmm. and only bring it out during times of emergencies. And so there was a lot of talk about like, we only have like these three or four values, you know, community and God and, you know, scripture and everything else is negotiable because that's not what we're about. And so we started to try to have conversations with people saying like, given that it is not one of the like hills this church dies on to, you know, have a certain stance on homosexuality do we have a stance on homosexuality? Like, because I don't want to start like saying that this is a place where, you know, I was at art school, kid, art school, right? <laughs> so I had gay friends, right? Um, and I was just like, I don't want to, I don't want to invite a friend to come here if like they get plugged in and want to be like super involved. And when they want to like teach Sunday school class, that's when somebody tells them, Oh, by the way, yeah, you know, I, I don't want it to happen that way. And so we started like trying to have these conversations and very quickly, you know, people who were in leadership were like, well, you know, we'd have to have a conversation if that happened. And I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. so there is, there is a viewpoint here. Um, and why can't we have that conversation now? Why do we have to wait until then? And the more I sort of like pressed on it, the more it became clear that there were, you know, and and again, I should have been able to figure this all out because like it's a vineyard church, right? The vineyard's got a pretty extensive 
theological statement just because this particular vineyard church was kind of like boutique vineyard, like did things in its own way that weren't the standard way, didn't mean that those vineyard theological values weren't there somewhere. Eventually, these kind of conversations and ideas made too many people uncomfortable. And so eventually, a small group of people who were kind of like leaders in the church said that they wanted to have coffee with me to sort of like talk about this thing. And when I, can't, I remember, I still remember, I came to that meeting with notes, <laughs> you know, because I had been like thinking about this and like thinking through the biblical argument and looking through like all the stuff. And I was, I was ready for like a big conversation about, you know, what should the church's position on homosexuality be? And the conversation began with them wishing me well on my spiritual journey, but sort of saying that they felt this was probably not the right community for me to be in, which was not at all how I thought that conversation was going to go. So I remember I was just sort of like a little dumbstruck through the conversation that like we weren't even going to have the conversation that, that it was just sort of being shown the door. Mm. And so that wasn't exactly kicked out. I I get where that's coming from because I think these folks that were recommending that I go find somewhere else, I do think on some level they cared about me and that they thought they were like doing the best thing they could do for the good of the community. I think they were wrong. And I think their, their basis for making those decisions was pretty problematic, but like, that's the thing we're talking about, right? Is that there is this thing in evangelicalism and the reason why it is so problematic is not because it turns everyone to fire breathing, hate filled monstrous bigots. It's because it takes good people and makes them do terrible things while they think they're doing something good and noble. is that sad yes mostly that gay people were being actively quietly excluded and also that young christians passionately pursuing knowledge and a life focused on god would be so carelessly turned away how different might the church be today if these young people were listened to back in the 80s and 90s how different earlier that she was pushing some of this in the background but was she upset that they got kicked to the curb so there i have there's a gay story in my family um that's always sort of haunted me and i think that was always in the back of my head just thinking about one of my my a cousin of mine who actually came out at they didn't really come out but he was he was discovered by another cousin of mine Mm. and like literally found in the act and was run out of town at the age of 17, moved to San Francisco, died of AIDS in the 80s. I mean, it's just one of, 80s, one of those like really tragic. And his story's always haunted me and the family's never talked about it. And I've, over the years been, especially recently, been really trying to understand what happened. That was a little bit in my head. And also I think Dan and I were just like newly in love. 
Mm-hmm. And I really think it, we thought a lot about how would you tell anybody? I don't fucking care who you love, like that you can't love or marry that person. It just, it, we just couldn't make sense of it. Right. And yet we were surrounded by that idea of being an abomination so I think that we were just willing to go to hell, quite frankly. I think we were willing to just like, okay, if that's what the church thinks, then the church isn't for us. And I think we were just willing to like leave it thoroughly and totally because we knew in our heart of hearts that it was wrong, mm-hmm. that it was wrong to, to dictate that. And then that was, I think that was the beginning of the conversation for us. That's where we started in our naivety in our early to mid twenties. I remember that was the exact time where we were talking a lot about the end of Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. So, you know, the part in Huckleberry Finn where like him and Jim get to the end of their adventure and then he feels like God is convicting him for the sin of running away with some lady's slave. And so he like writes this letter to tell Jim's owner where, where he's at and Mark Twain does such a good job of talking about how like Huckleberry Finn just feels his sin fall away when he gets this down in writing and he's doing the right thing. And he like gets the letter and he's like headed to mail it and he stops before he mails it and he tears it up and he says, fine, then I'll go to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That was the image. Cause we didn't know. We didn't, sort we, of, and I, we, we thought, I mean, it, it's it, again, anytime you're leaving that sort of community, you risk losing everybody, you risk losing family, friends. I mean, Dan's mom was a Moody Bible Institute grad. You know, there was a lot of cost. They knew in their hearts that the church's stance was wrong, and that was enough. So they said their goodbyes, packed up their little baby, and did what most cool entrepreneurial folks did in the 90s. We bought a coffee shop. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's what you did in that generation, right? And, you know, the reality is that we had a lot of situations where we encountered people from that community. And I did, especially when we owned the coffee shop. And they were pretty cold. And it hurt, you know, and we had to sort of go through that. I think the good news is we also discovered who we were as Christians. And we found, like, I found some of the best friends of my life that I'm still friends with. And that were outside of this, like, bubble of, like, fundamentalist Christianity that I had only ever known They left church and stayed out for 10 years. But a lot was happening spiritually during this wilderness time, and it was different for both of them. I I mean, it's also, I think, a little bit of the difference between sort of the experience that each of us had being Dan in a male body, me in a female body, growing up in fundamentalist evangelical Christianity. I was quite bitter, quite resentful. I had had a lot of experiences particularly around being a female in the church where my role my highest role uh was you know to be a godly wife a godly mother that was it and so I really didn't fit in particularly with the kind of personality I was which is pretty strong and always had this uh, aspiration of doing music and doing it in like a, a way that was super meaningful and like having a career so I feel like I was hurt in, by the church in ways. We were hurt differently, but Dan's response to it um, has always been curiosity and, like, challenging. And that could be 
just because he's in a, a, again, male body, he's been given a little more privilege in that way. And for me, it's always been a little bit of fear and just wanting to distance myself from it. Right. And so I think that's what I'm really grateful to about our relationship is he helps me. He'll say, like, why don't you just say something? And I'm, I'm like, I, oh, I can? And then I, I do. And then I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, I just did yeah. it, you know. Mm-hmm. He always sort of helps empower me in those ways that I don't often think I am empowered. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, this is where I started exploring. I, I wasn't genuinely pursuing Buddhism, but I began to explore Buddhism and particularly the teachings of Pema Chodron. Mm-hmm. And that began to shift my thinking, I think, around Christianity. It helped me to see Christianity in a very different way, and that was really healing for me. But I really couldn't look at Christianity for a while. I think I was just too hurt, and Dan was Dan was diving deeper, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would say, and getting more educated. But you were reading a lot of stuff that I first few years that yeah. we were out of the church. Yeah. I became massively depressed. Yeah. Um, started seeing a therapist regularly for the first time in my life. Got put on pretty heavy medication. Yeah. Um, there were concerns I was suicidal. Yeah. So, I mean, it got pretty dark for the first few years that we but were. But, and I church. would say that that's probably also as a result of you growing up in an intensely fundamentalist home yeah. and only attending fundamentals evangelical schools i actually had public school you right. know my, my dad wasn't religious my mom was not to the degree your parents were and i actually had a mix of public school and christian schools so. well and that was the key insight that came out of yeah. that time of like therapy was my therapist basically saying like your background has formed you into a person that needs everything to fit into either the white box or the black box you're not doing well with like nuance and right. the world is refusing to fit into those two boxes. Yeah. And you are increasingly cognizant of the fact that the world doesn't fit in those two boxes, but you have no toolkit with which to process that complexity. And you right. you keep trying to put it in the two boxes. And it's like, that's what's tearing you apart. Um, yeah. So that was super helpful to yeah. like, to have words for it or to have language for it. Here's some things that Kim was learning. Just little things. Little tiny ways of understanding my... I mean, this is where the religious versus spiritual, which again, I get what you're saying, but I feel like this is where I had to dive deep and do some spiritual work, you know. But again, I would say I didn't do it in a vacuum. I did it because I was trying to heal myself so in order to be a better partner, a better friend, I mean, a better mom, a better artist, all of these ways that I could. And my understanding of God was so toxic for me. And it was still just like, even though I wasn't in the church, it was still deeply embedded in me. And so I think Pema, I I really appreciated Pema's perspective. One, because she was an American woman that grew up in an American context So she had kids, she was married, her husband left her when she was in her 20s, mid-20s, and that's when that started her journey of eventually becoming a Buddhist nun. So I appreciated her background because she knew the the American experience. And Mm -hmm. um, she would just say things just about emotions being like clouds, you know, and how we do have the ability to sit with them as they 
come and pass over us, you know, that they're not always going to, just little things she would say that would, that would just help me breathe a little bit when I was mm. feeling these really dark emotions and this a ton of guilt. I mean, my Christianity that I grew up with just was just infused with guilt, a lot of begging God to make this thing lift off of me and not feel it or feeling like I was being punished. I wasn't doing God constantly judging me for every move I was making. Right, right. Um, a lot of fear, tons and tons and tons of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think her tapes, you know, the practices she would offer, even little things about, you know, the practice of Tonglen, like breathing out the fear and the, you know, I don't know, and then breathing in sort of the joy and, and just experience of others. And, and this sort of connection with people around the planet, but doing it sort of in your brain, you know, um, helped me imagine doing it in real life too. Mm. So that was a beneficial thing for me. And I would listen to her stuff when I would be on tour, like especially if I had a long drive somewhere, I would just put her tapes in and she was like a companion for me. Mm-hmm. So it was very helpful. Yeah. But ultimately I knew I, I didn't, I couldn't practice. Not that I couldn't, but I, that I, I wasn't, I, w- I didn't necessarily want to be a Buddhist. I just didn't think I could be anything, quite frankly. Right, right. So. So maybe this sounds lovely to you. They're both exploring their own spiritual pursuits, looking for ways to be a better partner and friend and connect with the universe. But for folks raised in the evangelical church, this is hella scary, bordering on dabbling in Satanism, literally. And it led to a huge realization for Dan. Is I remember it was a clarifying moment when we were deep in the thick of it and you said one night that you did that you no longer considered yourself a Christian and that maybe you were a Buddhist, maybe, maybe not. And I remember I went in the bathroom, shut the door and cried because, you know, Christianity still meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And to feel like you were now out on that, I didn't yeah. quite know what to you do with that. You felt super lonely, I'm sure. But I also remember like, by the time I left the bathroom, I had decided I needed to read a book about Buddhism. Like I needed to try to understand. I thought you were going to be like, so I was done, no, done I, with the marriage. <laughs> no, but that kidding. was clarifying I'm for me, kidding, right? Because honey. like when you're in evangelicalism, you are brought up with this idea that like yeah. what makes a marriage work is that you both have this shared religious identity. Yeah. And that if right. that goes away, everything else is done. Like there right. can be no future past that point. And like coming to that point and deciding fuck that. I want there to be a future. And so if, if Buddhism is how you are framing what matters to you, then I need to get better at speaking Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Um, at no point did I be like, and so I guess I'm done with Christianity too. I didn't quite know how to square that circle, but I was like, I'll get around to it, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. but it was one of those moments of like letting a thing break that you're told cannot be allowed to break Mm -hmm. and then realizing, Oh, uh, there apparently is more world on the other side of that particular apocalypse. Who knew? Right. That's a really good point too. And I think that's sort of, that's some of the residual damage. And a lot of the stuff that we really worked through was just those little moments where we were taught so many things were deal breakers and we just, you know, we were just like, is it really a deal breaker or can we actually move forward? You just, you have, there's some, you're just so in, um, wrapped up in fear. Everything is just about, it's just so fear-based. Um, and rejecting that and taking the risk, it, it, there was a lot of risk that happened, you know, so. When I walk away 
Will I be alone? Will the darkness drown me, soak everything? Will I get no comfort? Will I find no rest? When I walk away, it's risky because they're going against what they've been taught. You need to be, quote, equally yoked, which means be a Christian married to a Christian. Living within the, quote, biblical gender roles that were assigned to you based on your genitalia. And things have not quite turned out the way they planned when they made their vows at 20-ish years old. Where are they? Where are they going? Nobody knows. But they find themselves still committed. Still committed to each other. Still committed to figuring it out. They're being brave. And they have a little one. What are they going to do with him? Church is out, so any religious teaching is only going to happen at home. And what is that going to look like? Will there be more questions, just an endless cosmic test? Will I get an ending, or will I have to guess? What will happen to me, at least what will happen next? It was really Griffin's vulnerability that started really... Yeah. And we felt like he had no... Uh, like like no sense of the Bible. And right. So Dan started doing these things called Bible breakfasts with yep. Griffin. On Saturdays or something. Where like Dan would like tell stories from the Bible. We would read through scripture and like Dan would like give the historical background, which, you know, for me, you had been doing a lot of research and reading. Like I had no sense. I mean, I went to a Bible college. Which ironically are very poor at teaching the Bible. They're really <laughs> bad at it. So I had a very skewed version yeah. of the understanding of any books of the Bible, which I've all suppressed. I have absolutely no idea what anybody said about anything in Bible college. Yeah. Yeah, I was a terrible student anyway. So yeah. you were learning from Bible breakfast as well. I was, yeah. yeah. Now I was. It was Bible breakfast for me. Yeah, <laughs> so. right? Now, was, point. was Dan the spiritual head of your family? And or is Dan? That's a really strong title. I'm going to definitely say no on that one. I think, honestly, I think If so Camilla, honored, I will refuse the title. <laughs> I honestly think Camilla might be the spiritual, That's our true. dog Camilla our might dog be Camilla. the spiritual leader it's of probably our spiritual. house. Is she the barker? No, no she's, she's the chill, the chill one. one. We decided long ago she's Taoist. She just kind of goes with it and nothing yeah. shakes her. Yeah. Okay. No, but I would say Dan is the, he is the walking textbook. He's a walking, talking textbook. So Dan used to teach history. And he's just one of those people that he reads a thing. He's really annoying, like really fucking annoying. Like I read a thing <laughs> in college and I had to, you know, read it like 10 times. Dan reads it once and it's like embedded yeah. in his brain. And so he just recalls things very quickly and makes lots of connections very quickly. And he's also hugely passionate about history. And I think it was his passion about history and your years of teaching history that really fueled or, or at least helped your passion for scripture because it was super engaging for you. And Griffin, our son, is also super passionate about history because of his dad. And so I just think he was sort of the natural teacher when it came to that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I think there was an element of you and I being afraid that Griffin would be vulnerable to fundamentalism because I think a lot of times, you know, evangelicals are good at stepping into a person who has no prior knowledge base and yes. saying, 
here's the real story. And they say it with such conviction and they got a cool pizza party afterward. And so it's easy to believe that they know what they're talking about. From everything I've ever known, all the stories I was sold, that I thought would truth be told, will you stay? Or will you leave it all behind with me? See what we can find. They wanted to protect their kiddo from fundamentalism. Even though they're out in the spiritual wilderness, they're learning what is true for them, what still means something to them, even outside of organized religion. They're understanding better why there might still be a longing for community. Will I wander alone? How far will I walk until I find where I belong? Our sense of being sort of whatever, out in the spiritual wilderness for a decade was in many ways life-giving and helpful because we like learned how to make meaningful connections with people who understood the world really, really differently from us in a way that a fundamentalist upbringing tells you cannot happen. Right. Um, And so there was a lot of like smashing idols out in the wilderness, like sort of like realizing these things are not true that we have been taught. But there was also this sense of longing to get back into a community where you could go deeper with some of this stuff and where you could build something, you know, like all those same things that appealed to us when we were, you know, doing the the the, the neo monastic community, like they never stopped appealing, yeah. at least to me, this yeah. notion of like gathering a group of people, investing deeply in each other's lives, finding some way to impact the world for the better. Yeah. Um and and doing it all because in some way I understand this to be flowing as a living extension of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, like I the, I can't remember who was it. I think it was like Flannery O'Connor who said a Christian is a Christ haunted person. <laughs> And I very much have related to that. I think throughout my life, wherever I've gone and whatever I have thought, I have never stopped feeling Christ haunted. Mm-hmm. You know, like there was always this this sense of um, whatever Jesus was about. It was it was important, and it has had lasting repercussions in this world that I am struggling to fully understand and be a part of. And and I think that also was a piece of it that in some ways was helpful when we were exiting the church was that I very much felt like my, my theology and this community that we were invested in was like falling apart. But I also had some sense that like whatever mistake we were possibly making, I learned it from Jesus. Like there was some sense of like Jesus as the one who is like constantly in solidarity with the oppressed and the one who is constantly longing to say the hard thing and have the hard conversation and that doesn't always go over well with people and so there was a weird sense that being thrown out of church boy this could easily turn into like a kind of megalomania but it was like a moment of being like i i think i am starting to get what it means to like mm-hmm. identify your life with christ not mm-hmm. i'm a i mean i'm a shit messiah for anybody but you know there is this sense of like there's actual cost here and like and, and it started to make sense that like you know when jesus gets in trouble with people it's pretty much always religious people right like he's he cares a lot about religion actually and he cares a lot about the institutions and they don't always react well to him and so there was something about like i don't know going on that particular chapter of life that was like okay that makes more sense to me now that piece of the jesus story that i that didn't really make any sense when we were all like in the clubhouse being super pious together like 
that somehow didn't feel like an authentic extension of this story about Jesus, but, um, mm-hmm. but this bit does. Yeah. Talking about the, the concept of identifying with Christ, like I, I realized that it's, I wasn't allowed to do that uh, growing up in the fundamentalist evangelical world particularly as a female, like, I'm not sure what it was like for you, but I feel like, you know, the most I could ever identify with someone was like maybe Mary. And really that was just around her motherhood and her parent, you know, her motherhood and her like being a wife and like the godly mother or whatever, godly woman. It's also the choice part in the Christmas pageant. Right. It's the choice part. But I, I just feel like I was never, it really, it never really dawned on me that I could genuinely identify with the humanity, the life of Christ. And I've been really, chewing on that again in this body as a you know cisgendered female like what it's like to actually identify with that and giving myself permission to do so Mm. so i mean i hear what you're saying i mean i I think it can come across as like megalomaniac but i actually think the the more helpful way to view it is that looking at his life and allowing ourselves to identify allowing ourselves to identify with his actual the actual arc of his life because there's so much about it that is fascinating and um, we can learn from and watch. And I mean, and ultimately, I think that's what draws me closer to it. That's a little bit of a side rant, but yeah, I've been thinking about that today. Yeah, I walked away from all that happiness. So Kim has shared some messages she received growing up about her value as a woman. And as she and Dan described their decades-long relationship, I can't help but be so thankful she ended up with him. She's a singer-songwriter who has had the opportunity to pursue this career that she is very clearly made for. And had things gone a different way, I'm not sure it would have happened. But she's strong and made choices that set her up for this. And maybe even that despairing moment when they were kicked out of church set her on the right path. So I don't want to gloss over this part of her story. Here it is. I released my first record in 2001, and Griffin was about three. There was a, a, a band I was connected with back in Cincinnati, and they had a guitarist, and he lived actually in the neighborhood really close to the church we'd been talking about, and he made this little makeshift studio in his basement and had this really awesome, actually, vocal booth that he built just for me and some of the projects he was working on and cool. made my first record called So Black, So Bright. And it was mostly songs about my great-grandmother had just died and my grandfather had just died. So it was songs about their lives a little bit and also about we were just, we had just left the church. Mm. Um, so it was like this mixture of my life in Florida, which at that point had been the majority of my life, and leaving Florida and then parenthood my son was three so I had just had I was a new mother and then we had just left the church so all these experiences rolled into this record it was really well received in Cincinnati and I won a couple of different awards I won like new artist of the year and singer songwriter of the year and then I started touring with a local band um, called over the Rhine that was there and were nationally known and they really took me under their wing for many many years I did a lot of tours with them and ended up making another shorter record, which ended up 
having me connected to my manager. And then that led me to getting an agent that I'm still with and eventually led me to meeting this guy named Jimmy Zhivago in New York City who passed away many years ago. But I made my second record that came out in 2006 called I Feel Like a Fading Light. And I made that record in New York City and toured a lot on that record, but that record and, and landed me on World Cafe with David Dye, and I ended up doing like a getting national exposure on NPR. That just, you know, sort of led to, with my agent, doing a lot of touring with different artists, and that was also the record that I started getting placements on television. Ah, uh, yeah. Maybe I Feel Like a Fading Light, that title track, actually might have been my very first placement in like the unit or something some like cop show okay yeah, yeah. A lot of cop show placements yeah thank goodness for Dawson's Creek Dawson's Creek opened up this whole world of like independent songwriters getting placements they would balance the placements of major artists with like independent artists cool so I had a ton of placements over the years which really helped my profile it helped me land some tours had this really wonderful experience of touring with the Canadian songwriter Ron Sexsmith, where I toured on his, actually toured with him on the bus around the United States and got to play at the Ryman Theater, which was an incredible experience down in Nashville. So, you know, it was a mixture over the years of placements, different placements, different tours with different artists, and more records. I made another record called Little Miracle, another record called um, Loves a Dog, and then eventually my fifth full length which was songs of instruction that came out in 2018 somewhere in like 2016 or 2017 we started getting a call from a company in china called NetEase, which was a big streaming company over there for mostly video games but they opened up a, a music branch and that's is a really long convoluted story but the short sh- short story is i had co-written this song called i am you that had become a huge hit in china i ended up getting to tour over there twice in 2018 playing major festivals which was a very surreal experience where I was playing for thousands of people oh my gosh I remember taking a taxi cab somewhere and IMU was just randomly playing on the radio like going to a hotel the second tour I went we went to a hotel and my band everybody we'd all checked into our rooms and well when I opened the door of my room IMU started playing oh my gosh and because it, it was everything was automatic like lights would turn on radio would turn on to like welcome you into the room it was a really cool hotel. And I remember the booking agent was downstairs. And I remember running down to her and being like, did you do this? Like, this is, this is silly. Yeah. She was like, I have no idea. <laughs> She's like, I did not do this. this is, she was like, Kim, your song is a huge hit in China. And so still it, it, you know, my music in general, you know, gets over a million, I can't say like a million and a half streams every month in China. Oh my gosh. My catalog does. But I am used still been like a big, a big one over there yeah. and so you're super famous is what you're in saying in china mainland yeah. china well, oh, i don't well, i wouldn't say that no I'm big deal super, just well, china. i wouldn't say that i'm super <laughs> famous but that song is still really well known and it's cool it's interesting because i still will get even even when i toured and i would go do signing uh sign records and stuff it would it wouldn't just be like moms it was like kids like i would get emails and texts from not texts but like yeah. messages from kids in in junior high and high school just going on and on about the song and they would expose them to my other music anyway as a result of that I ended up having a placement uh the same song actually from songs of instruction got placed in 
one major film in China that was that was released over there, but then also a major series, dreaming series. So it was it was a song of mine called "The Hard Way" that got placed in two series over there. Yeah. Um, and then COVID hit. COVID's been a big killer for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, not just literally physically, but also career wise. It's I've I have a friend who he's he's had a, a steady gig every week for the last 15 years and it ended with covid right um, he's trying to figure out his life and world right now so you know i haven't done a whole lot of shows um yeah. but i have been working on a new record full-length record mm-hmm. and i just had what is it two weeks ago we i just had my first placement in the last two years it's not out yet do you remember what my song is called <laughs> long haul love. love long haul that love. i wrote and sing lead on that's in a Robert De Niro film Ooh, coming out. Cool. And John Malkovich. Called um, Wash Me in the River that will be coming out soon. She did forget about that movie. Here's what happened. This is actually a really interesting story. So a friend of mine, <laughs> we actually went to Bible college together. Um, she's an incredible writer and she went on to like Iowa Writers work- Workshop, which is like Flannery, where Flannery O'Connor went and um, went on to be a, 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 t- a professor, but also a screenwriter. And she wrote this screenwriter with a friend uh, at the time who was a director, established a name for himself as an independent director. And they co-wrote a screenplay, and she called me. Actually, she emailed me one one year. I can't remember. This would have been maybe 2011, and said, I wrote this screenplay, and you're a featured character, and would you ever want to be in a movie? movie? And I, I, I literally was like, uh, no, that's ridiculous. Like, I, I have no acting skills, whatever. <laughs> And so she kind of let it go for a while, and then she contacted me a year later. She's like, no, seriously, we're going to start filming and all this stuff. And so I was like, all right, I'll try it. And in the meantime, it was funny. Another friend of mine in Cincinnati got wind that I was doing this film, and she ended up getting me cast in another film in Cincinnati prior to me doing that film, which was really good experience. Because this was my first experience of actually having to go to film sets and be an act and, like, you know, memorize lines and it was so unnerving and have to be in spaces where there's a camera and it's like rolling and I'm having to like, it's just so unnerving. So yeah, that was good experience for this project. Um, so it's this movie called I used to be darker set in Baltimore, Maryland. It was a kick. It was kickstarted. Um, actually they kickstarted it during the film process. So we were already filming, you know, this huge crew, um, hoping that they would meet their goal. They did. And the whole film wrapped. I came home and thought that was going to be the end of it. I knew they were going to submit it to festivals. And we were at Thanksgiving, and I get a call during the dinner, and it's the director. And he was like, are you sitting down? And I was like, okay. And he was like, we just got accepted into Sundance. And I was like, fucking kidding me? <laughs> and so, yeah, we went to Sundance. And, so cool. And, and to the Berlin Isle. And, well, we went to Sundance first, and we had eight screenings and had the red carpet treatment. And... <gasps> Oh my god! I did photos for Esquire magazine, and it was like a really surreal experience. You like bumped into Nicole Kidman. Oh uh, yeah, I was doing I was doing photo shoot for Esquire, and we were walking down the hallway, and Nicole Kidman had I don't remember what film she was in, and she was right behind me, and I just remember turning around to my friend and going, "What world is this that I'm (laughs) in?" Like she's right behind me. I remember I got free boots. That was cool. That was really cool. But it was free boots, free UGG boots on top of that, which was awesome. But it was it was an amazing experience to see that I had to see the film every time we would do Q and A's after every before and after every film and or after every film we'd introduce and then do Q and A. 
this isn't weird. It was like surreal, yeah. you know, doing the red carpet thing and, and then doing eight screenings. And then we got into the Berlinale, which is in Berlin, Germany, and which is an even larger uh, festival. It is all, I mean, every, like, so many people come from all over Europe. And again, it's also about seven to eight screenings. And I remember there was one screening we went to, and the it was like a 10 o'clock screening, and we had all run over there to do the Q&A afterwards. And I remember we walked. I, I had gone to the bathroom first, and the director and, and a couple of the cast people had gone in. And I come out of the bathroom, and the director's standing in the bathroom. He's like, Kim, you, I have to just I have to walk you in because I want to see your reaction when you see the screen. And we walked in, and the screen is literally the size of a football field. It's just gigantic. It was I've never seen such a big screen. And I walk in, and it's like one of my scenes, too. And I just walked out. I was like hyper. I couldn't even. I was like, I'm too big. I'm huge. <laughs> it was great. How um, fun. Yeah, it was cool. And, like, for a hot second, I ended up actually getting a really major acting agent. Really? I did. And and I, I'm probably technically still under her, but she... <laughs> But but she she mostly she mostly <laughs> she's mostly an agent for Broadway, so uh-huh. I um does not which isn't really my thing. She's not a Broadway actress, but she was picked for a part in the Nick, a piano playing nun. Like I said, she's the saint in this story. Here's where you can find Kim's music. They can go to Kim Taylor.net. When I bought my website back in the late nineties. Right. KimTaylor.com was already taken. <laughs> so I went with Kim-Taylor.net, and I've just stuck with it ever since. I'm also on all streaming services, Spotify, Apple Music. Cool. Thank you for that full history. Yeah. I don't. How did you get such a cool wife? Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's because she was one you door down. You the right room at the convent. That's right. <laughs> and the shit just works out for you. When I get to heaven, I'll unlock the pearly gates I'll let everyone escape that's inside And if they try to stop me, I will stand and not back down Burn the whole thing to the ground, set everybody free So as we pause Kim and Dan's story at this moment, kicked out of their church, beliefs that no longer align with what they were raised in. I asked them to reflect on the relationship with their parents in this ongoing faith journey. They've had ups and downs, but Dan's take is really around the damage to relationships caused by fundamental evangelicalism. Parents are so fearful, wondering how their child was deceived. Where did they go wrong? It's kind of a shame that like, there are these aspects in sort of the evangelical world that I, that I think are very life-giving, you know, this ability to sort of like teach people the importance of it's, you know, church is not just a thing where like you go to a place on Sunday morning and you do some rituals and then you get on with your life, that it actually is meant to shape the way that you treat others. And I think my parents both experienced that in their lives, like, like mm-hmm. a vision of the church as um, something bigger than some, some pointless rituals that you do in hopes of earning divine favor. But I think it's a shame that like, that version of Christianity through the 20th century has just been coupled with so much toxic stuff, you know, yeah. that there, there has been this, that, that, that there's never been a way to sort of 
extricate the 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 stuff that is very life-giving and helpful from the stuff that is that instills deep fear in people and and makes them live in very fearful ways and i think that fearfulness is what can really damage you know your relationships with anyone who sort of doesn't see the world quite in the same way mm-hmm. you are and and so i i don't know um so i think one of the things that the sort of fundamentalist version of Christianity does to you if you are parents raising kids is that it convinces you that if your kids should ever begin to see the world differently from you, that it is because they are fundamentally deceived that like some person or the devil or fill in the blank has like deceived your child and led your child astray. And that if you had, you know, whatever done a better job or something like that, they would, they wouldn't have, have gone there. And I think my sense is that my parents have often been hunting for the thing that deceived me at different stages of my life that they were sort of like wondering who was to blame for the fact that like I took these different turns from them and I, and I don't know that they've ever fully understood that I was kind of like driving the car the whole time that I was you know gathering mm-hmm. ideas from different people and places but I was not sort of just like being indoctrinated by someone else's worldview. Lord right. knows my life would have been like way easier if I had just right. jumped ship and fully invested in someone else's take on things. And so I guess like one of the things I hope for is that my parents would recognize that like they didn't do a terrible job with me. You know, they didn't fail because I didn't stick with their version of the church doesn't mean like they missed the target. In fact, it means, you know, I would argue the opposite, that the reason that I ended up leaving that version of Christianity was because they did a good job of teaching me to, like, read the Bible and to wonder what Jesus would do in a situation. This is something lots of deconstructed evangelicals want their parents to understand. Parents who passed on some wonderful tenets that they had learned that perhaps didn't then lead the direction they had hoped. Man, faith transitions are hard for couples and families, sometimes devastating deal breakers. When you make your vows, you know logically some things will change, but you also believe that if you have a shared faith foundation, that that will always be the bedrock you stand upon. And that is just not the case. My partner Aaron and I joke about these expectations now, so I shared my anniversary card with Kim and Dan. He's really good with the cards. And he said, (laughs) do you think this is actually what was meant by equally yoked two Mm. people with mutual disdain for the same things with a shared desire to burn it all down? (laughs) (laughs) So romantic. That's awesome. (laughs) And it's like, rawr. rawr. (laughs) We're only halfway through their married journey, y'all. So tune in next time for part two. We're here, fuckers. Were you aligned between the two of you as far as like when you were done and when you came back? Like, was there, no. you were not, who, who wanted to go back and who was not so sure? This song is Pearly Gates by Kim Taylor. 
You also heard The Rage, Let Me Down, and All My Happiness. Unlock the 